Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we're joined by investigative reporter and data journalist Adam Rose. Adam is a queer, first-generation Cuban-American who works uncovering corruption and wrongdoing in our nation's healthcare and criminal justice systems, as it says on his website. Adam reports for the Chicago Reader as a social justice reporting fellow and is the president of the Chicago chapter of the NLGJA, which is the Association of LGBTQ Journalists. Adam, thank you for joining us. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. All right. So the first question is always the same for every guest that we have. Share your journalism path with us. Yeah, so I actually first uh, got into journalism as a potential career path. Um, my sophomore year of college, I started out as like a pre-law major at like a really small liberal arts college um, and essentially hated it. So I transferred to a bigger university um, and my mom had um, seen that I was always really interested in writing or just like reading the news and staying up to date on things like that. So she suggested taking journalism classes um, and I absolutely fell in love with it. That was at the University of Central Florida. And after I graduated in 2015, I moved to New York City um, to be a news assistant and an eventual general assignment reporter at a legal newswire, Law 360. And um, after a couple of years there, I went to Medill to, at Northwestern University to get my master's degree. And after I graduated in, I think it's August of last year, I uh, was hired at the Chicago Leader as its inaugural social justice reporting fellow. What was the value of the master's degree in uh, pursuing what you want to pursue? Um, it is, it's, uh, helped me pivot essentially completely toward um, what I wanted to report on. My degree was specifically concentrated on social justice and investigative journalism, and I report on queer issues and queer communities and racism and things like that. And so it was an invaluable experience um, working with professors who have um, just the best access in the business to report this kind of Okay, so from having grown up in New York City, I know The Village Voice was an old weekly that came out every Wednesday. Explain the significance of the Chicago Reader, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Yeah, so the Chicago Reader, I think if I have this correct, I'm 99% sure, it's the nation's first free weekly newspaper. Um, so essentially, the Chicago Reader set the tone for places like The Village Voice um, and I believe like in these times or the Miami New Times um, and all of these um, alt-weekly publications now. Okay, explain what an alt-weekly is. Yeah, so an alt-weekly is um, essentially a weekly publication that pretty much centers on um, like the underground, more, um, I guess, like liberal focused um, activist communities, as well as like more underground, like art and culture scenes in the city. Sure. I, I asked that uh, on behalf of the younger people that might not be familiar with yeah, uh, totally. the people. The people uh, I, so as I said, I grew up in New York City. Uh, Village Voice was something that we got every week. Uh, and that uh, certainly as a young person, it was I was exposed to things that I had no idea about previously uh, and that uh, certainly were very eye opening in a number of respects. And that gets to your work. Uh, your work certainly eye-opening. In reading some of your stories for the reader and otherwise, I was trying to come up with a description, and I came up with thorough, rich in the history of the topic, comprehensively sourced, with a lot of no comments, 
And then the big thing is they generate a strong emotional reaction. How would you characterize what you're trying to do in your writing? Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for those kind words. I think um, I would say what I'm trying to do the most in my writing is, uh, I guess, show people that the queer experience oftentimes um, can be quite difficult because of the actions of the state or people in various dominant groups, I think. Um, when I was starting out as a journalist, um, like at my college paper, I was essentially told not by like any editors that I worked with, but really like the cultural zeitgeist um, at the time that like covering queer issues was just like pride parades and drag queens. And I essentially, the goal of my writing is just to highlight the continued um, discrimination that our community faces that I think a lot of people in the modern um, gay rights movement, like post-marriage equality, have um, maybe either like ignored or just chosen to um, look over. Is there a specific misconception that you feel gets gets brought to your attention often that you that you I don't want to say get frustrated by, but something that you feel that you have to really uh, put a point of emphasis on? Yeah, I think um, a lot of coverage of queer people really centers on like the affluent white gay male, like the Neil Patrick Harris, or um, like the fit like white gay men that are on like queerest folk and things like that. But I think it's really imperative to understand that the most vulnerable people in this community are, you know, black and brown trans people, particularly trans women who are being murdered um, at alarming rates every year. But that issue doesn't seem to be making the headlines um, at major publications as much as I personally believe it should. How did your upbringing uh, play a role in how your, your coverage is of this subject? Um, my parents have always, always, always supported my writing and always supported um, me being very fearless in my writing. My dad, from when I was really, really young, he always told me, um, he always like gave me the opportunity really to talk back to him. He always said, he was like, if I'm doing something wrong, you need to tell me. Or he was like, if I hurt your feelings, you need to tell me. And I think that really plays into my writing a lot in that I'm not afraid to say that something is racist or something is homophobic or something is transphobic. I think a lot of journalists these days really wring their hands over objectivity. I think it's a conversation that is um, moving more toward what the actual um, idea is that objectivity in journalism, from my perspective, is not a thing. Um, but in my perspective, it's my job as a journalist to make those kind of calls that things are racist and homophobic or transphobic, or that queer people are, you know, deserving of rights and other, I guess, controversial topics. From having read a number of your stories, I would say you definitely don't hold back. Let's go through a couple <laughs> of examples. Uh, one is that you reported on the history of a racist homophobic law that criminalizes having HIV in Illinois. It's a law that was passed in the 1980s at the time of the AIDS crisis. There's a lot of layers to this in how this law can be weaponized. Uh, it's a powerful piece that, and this is something that's been a point of emphasis in these conversations that we've had, that shows the human impact of the legislation. The last line, if you get a chance to read it, the link's in the show notes. The kicker is very good. Uh, how is the idea for the story generated What uh, and what went into reporting it? Yeah, so I have to credit the idea to the story with my very dear friend and mentor, Stephen Thrasher. 
Um, this is an area that he reports on quite regularly, and I attended a lecture of his on his dissertation on this subject, and he just very briefly mentioned that um, a state that he had reported on HIV criminalization, that they were not the only state in the country to have these types of laws. So when I went to the Chicago Reader, I was interested in just reporting on the law broadly, um, but I truly never expected it would turn into this um, like massive blistering story that it did. I didn't really expect to find that much like blatant racism and like AIDS panic. And I like I didn't expect there to be ties to the Reagan administration of all things. What are the challenges of getting so much history into a piece like that? Yeah, I think um especially now in like twenty twenty one, I think I'm gifted as a reporter having a lot of digital access to things. But there were so many things, um especially the legislative transcripts that I had to dig through that were not like text searchable, that there was not um, a transcript for every single legislative session or some of them weren't very legible. Um, so the, the I think there was more technical challenge than anything. Um, and it was also really difficult to get uh, court records about these cases from the actual court system because there was some issue about whether the cases could actually be produced to me under the AIDS Confidentiality Act in Illinois. How long did the piece take to do? Uh, five months. Wow. Okay. So that that was something that I that I wanted to address, especially for people that are listening that are up and comers. Um, a lot of your work looks like it's in that multiple month uh, bucket of uh, of journalism. Uh, what uh, what is that kind of process like? Maybe even walk us through a couple of steps that that made it uh, become such a, a long process to get the, the piece done. Yeah, I think um, it really is the same for me with every story. I just try to call and talk to as many people as possible, and I think that really drives and can point to when there is a deeper thing to be investigated. Um, I admit, I don't know if I have a ton of, like, specific advice about, like, how to get good at, like, doing these, like, long month investigations, because I, I balance them with um, more, like, quick hit stories that I do, so I'm not, like, working on the same story for five months, um, yep. but I'm just balancing, balancing with other things, and I will say, like, I am very inexperienced in, like, doing this kind of story. I went to Medill specifically to learn how to do this, and uh, the Chicago Reader is the first place that I've worked that gives me the bandwidth to do this, so I am kind of learning as I go. Um, but I will say if you, specifically for up-and-coming journalists, if you think a story is like a big story worth investigating, like if your gut feeling is that this could be a like 10,000 word story or a like 3,000 word story or anything like that, I think I would say just trust their gut because I actually can't tell you how many people told me that the Boys Town story that I did on the systemic racism in the Boys Town or in the now North Falstead community um, was not a story. I'm going to get to that story in a second. I do want to touch on one other thing related to this one. How did your Law 360 background come in handy for uh, for your work with this uh, this piece on criminalizing HIV? Yeah, so pretty much all of my, or the bulk of my familiarity with the reporting on the legal system um, comes from Law 360. It's where I learned how to access court dockets, how to really understand what's going on in the court process. So um, for the sake of this story, the legal um, reporting knowledge that I had uh, was thanks to my time there. 
You mentioned lessons learned and your uh, level of experience or inexperience with this. What's the best lesson you learned in doing a piece like that? I think it's just really stick with it. I think there are definitely certain times where um, my, not my interest or like my dedication, but the um, emotional drive that I have can be, um, it can go up and down, especially as like I hit a roadblock in a story. But I think as long as you have editors that are also committed to the story as well, that, that is super important. So another piece you just mentioned is the Boys Town piece. Uh, this one was done for the reader uh, about Boys Town, a neighborhood popular with LGBTQ people, uh, but one with a problematic, I'd say awful history as relates to white supremacy. Uh, same question for this one. Uh, how did this one come about? Um, so this uh, story actually came out of me just taking a walk around uh, the community. I had just very recently moved to Chicago. Um, I had very recently started dating my now partner and we just, I wanted to walk around the, what I thought was like the cool queer enclave. Um, and I remember walking around and within 10 minutes in the neighborhood, I just turned to uh, my partner. And I said, why is everybody white here? And then he's like, oh no, that's, that's what it's like here. Um, and so then I just decided to look into it from there. I think I did just very cursory research about like, I think I literally just looked up like Boys Town racism and then that's when everything about Walsh Security and then um, Progress Bar and the rap bands and the beatnik's Confederate flag incident, all of which are mentioned in the article. And that's when it kind of opened up. But I saw all of those, I saw the reporting as like kind of spot news and not tying them together in a systemic fashion. And just summarize the story. Uh, we're going to have it in the show, uh, in the link, in the show notes. Uh, we'll have the link in the show notes. Just summarize the story for our listeners. Yeah, so Chicago's principal Northside queer community, um, North Halstead, the Boys Town name has uh, been retired now. Um, it's essentially the largest queer enclave in the city, but it's also pretty much rampant with racism from bar owners to business owners to even patrons. Black and brown um, queer people face rampant discrimination and it is quite frankly an awful place to be if you're not like a white gay man. How did you get your sources comfortable talking to you for this one? Um, I think with, particularly with this one, I'm a white passing uh, Latinx person. So I think just really being very upfront about that, um, being honest with my sources that like, I am asking you to uh, relive or talk about things that you probably didn't want to experience in the first place. So I think just being very honest with my sources and giving them a lot of agency in the process. I think journalism traditionally can be very exploitative of sources in some ways where journalists can parachute in, um, essentially take this person's story and then get professional success with it or get like accolades or whatever. Um, but I wanted to give my sources the room to like kind of push back on all of that and I started every interview by saying, like, you don't have to answer any question that you don't want to answer. You can tell me if I'm thinking about something the wrong way, if I should be refocusing this or anything like that. So I really wanted my sources to feel like they were partners in the story and not just subjects that I was taking from. Is there an advantage uh, or what is the advantage uh, there being from the reader as opposed to being from the big papers like the Tribune? Yeah, I think because the reader... Um, has a looser publishing schedule, I have a lot more time to develop these kinds of relationships with my sources, as opposed to having to churn out uh, like a daily story that 
I might not be able to have these kinds of conversations, at least as regularly as I do now. What kind of re- uh, response do you get on, on those two pieces that I've, I've brought up so far? Um, I, I got wonderful responses in that people, uh, they had an impact on the way people looked at the issue. I um, was especially happy that Lucy Stuhl, um, a drag performer who was in the Boys Town story, said it was essentially the only reporting that had gotten it right, uh, which I was very proud of. And as for the um, HIV criminalization story, Governor Pritzker is actually signing the bill to repeal the HIV criminalization statute on Tuesday. So um, I can't take credit for that. It the bill was pat, the bill was introduced uh, actually while I was investigating the actual law itself. Um, but it's it's a nice um, bow on the end of the story. Certainly. Um, one other piece that you did. This one you did for BuzzFeed. It was on Puerto Rico and the challenges that hurricane season presents regarding getting HIV medication. Statistics play a big role in this story. For example, you point out that more than forty percent of HIV cases in Puerto Rico come as a result of drug needle usage, whereas in the mainland U.S., that's only 7%. Uh, You also have a great quote from someone frustrated with the Trump administration, this story a little bit older, uh, saying, all they do is throw paper towels. Uh, There was a dateline of San Juan on the piece. So what was your experience being there and seeing everything and dealing with this? Yeah, so I was actually in Puerto Rico as part of a, as part of my master's program. Every, um, Every master's student was given the opportunity to go on like various uh, trips, depending on what they focused on and what we're interested in. Um, and I had my story idea about that I was interested in investigating HIV access before uh, we went on the trip. And just the experience was, first of all, so incredibly eye-opening. I had never experienced um, that number one going on a needle exchange. I had never experienced like going to both hurricane and earthquake impacted communities. So just like personally, it was striking and really, really affecting to see um, the disasters that people have survived and are dealing with. Um, And just seeing all of that really motivated me to, I guess, dig really deep with the story. (laughs) So in reading this piece, the other two, listening to a podcast that you did that we're not necessarily going to get into here, but um, it strikes me, I have a feeling that a book might be in your future at some point in the near future, in the near or far future. Um, is there something that you want to report on that you haven't quite touched on yet uh, that maybe lends itself to something even bigger? I don't know. I actually am really enjoying reporting on like underground, like queer, like sex communities. Like I've reported on like the local leather museum. I'm reporting on um, like an FDA declaration about poppers, which is um, like a chemical commonly used in um, like sexual settings. And I think it's an area and a history that a lot of people don't think about, but has a lot of um, tie-ins with just like the political landscape. I mean, this ties in, the popper story ties into like the gay blood ban and the AIDS crisis and the FDA's um, sometimes like sex negativity toward queer people. And so I think there's just, I think I do want to just dig into um, like underground queer issues is really probably uh, what I see myself reporting on more in the future. It sounds like you found a niche that, uh, that fits what you're looking for. 
I want to shift focus to talk about the NLGJA, the Association of LGBTQ Journalists. It's the premier network for LGBTQ media professionals and all dedicated to the highest journalistic standards in the coverage of LGBTQ issues. They're headquartered in Washington, D.C. What are the priorities of the group and the Chicago chapter that you're the president of? Um, so the biggest priorities of the organization at large is just fair and accurate coverage of queer people and specifically in the Chicago chapter, as I kind of help revamp it with Jake Wittich of Block Club Chicago, is really to just give the Chicago queer media community space to just be ourselves, that we can talk about issues impacting our community, the various and oftentimes complicated issues impacting our community, and just like to give us space to be queer. What's this, what's the specific with that, that maybe someone like, quite frankly, like like me, might not uh, necessarily think of. Yeah, I think there is really just a value in um, holding space among ourselves. I think, you know, even as in 2021, as queer rights have advanced and are being rolled back at the same time, sometimes it can feel a little fraught being a queer person surrounded by cis people, no matter how accepting those cis people are, or no matter how accepting those um straight people are I should say um so I think there sometimes is just um like that ability to breathe that okay. um is valuable how much of the work of what you do is combating reports of discrimination in the industry um admittedly that isn't really in my role at um the NLGJA we do have a rapid response team that responds to all sorts of things um I don't have Jake Wittich over at Black Club Chicago is on that team um, I'm not privy to a ton of that, but I know that at the Chicago chapter, we have um, definitely stepped in when trans and uh, queer journalists have been harassed by people on social media, by sources, things like that. Like, what what's the biggest priority for you in that position moving forward, looking ahead? Um, yeah, I think it's just making sure and just like, I think continuing our trend, actually, of just creating space because we have held a couple events the past year as we've um, kind of tried to make our presence a little more known in the community. And we see that it's something that people want. And so I think just moving forward, I want to continue working with other affinity groups like NABJ, AAJA, um, all of the affinity groups in Chicago that are just so strong and so passionate and we're so lucky to work alongside. Yep, we've had guests from uh, a number of the groups that you mentioned. We have others coming uh, in the future. Uh, you're also on the board of the Chicago Headline Club, which is the largest uh, society for professional journalists chapter. Uh, just explain that to us. Yeah, so it's actually a very recent position. I actually haven't done anything just yet, but um, I'm really excited to be on the board in that I think I just want to see more queer people in higher places and things like that. And um, again, it's just part of, I think it's just the next step in my goal of just trying to create as much space for queer media people in Chicago as possible. So you've taken on leadership roles, being on the board for there and uh, being the president of the Chicago chapter of the NLGJA. Uh, why do you take on leadership roles? Um, I am very much uh, of the mind of I don't, if I am looking for something and don't see it, that I want to just do it myself. Um, and so I think 
I have very strong opinions that like the media industry could be much friendlier to queer people. It could be more accepting. It could like loosen its grip on objectivity and both sidesism that has largely um, been a detriment to queer subjects. And um, I think my perspective is if somebody is not going to do it, then I will. What's the best way for a person um, like me to support your work and to support the work of these groups? Um, number one, I think being a member of these groups, you do not have to be um, a queer person to be a member of NLGJA. You do not have to be Latinx or Hispanic to be a member of NAHJ. Um, I think it's just really like being a member of these organizations and supporting the work that they do. Uh, all right. Um, and I want to give uh, two other things before we let you go. I want to give a shout out to City Bureau. Uh, we had Bettina Chang from City Bureau on as one of our first guests on this podcast. And if you're listening to this Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, Adam is speaking July 29th on the subject of how do we tell queer stories in Chicago? Give us a little preview if you can. Yeah, so um, I'm actually working with somebody else on the panel. Her name is Arisha Bennett, and she's a multidis multidisciplinary artist in Chicago whose work often explores the intersection of Black and queer identity. Um, and we're really just kind of going to be talking very broadly about like, what do we want out of a queer press or what do we want out of a press in general? How can we be more inclusive and more um, radical in our reporting and our storytelling? We, we did an advice question earlier. I want to do one advice question as we, we near the end here. You enlist yourself as a data journalist too. What advice do you have for people doing statistical research uh, for their articles for any subject. Sometimes it can be really frustrating when you don't have like the perfect data set that like you're looking for. Um, but I would say reach out specifically to experts who are researching the thing that you're interested in or who have some sort of expertise adjacent to what you're interested in. And those have been oftentimes my most helpful sources for getting the data set that I think most aligns with my interests in, with regard to a story. What's an example of that? Um, when uh, for the Puerto Rico story, um, I was talking to my mentor, actually, Stephen Brasher, um, about the story just before I even started the reporting process. And he was the one who pointed me to these HIV surveillance reports from the CDC that were really difficult to find, um, just like on the website. It was not a very intuitive process. And that's where I got the statistics of the, uh, the way that uh, HIV is transmitted on the island. Oh, the one that I cited uh, earlier. Yeah. yeah. That, and that one jumped out. That one very much jumped out in that piece. Yeah. All right. Last question. Uh, name a journalism organization, one that you're not affiliated with, uh, that you would like to salute. Yeah, um, I think I'll definitely have to salute uh, the tribe. They do an incredible um, job of reporting on the Black community in Chicago. I think they knock it out of the park, like literally with everything that they do. Um, I think everyone should be watching and like loving them. Adam Rhodes, thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, best of luck in your future. Thank you so much. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org podcast, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. 
please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.